the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Evolve, Move, and Play founder, Rafe Kelly. Rafe's background includes gymnastics, martial arts, mindfulness training, and more. Along with years of research into the scientific and evolutionary perspectives of how humans move. As an explorer and seeker, he has spent decades on his deep-seated search for better paths towards well-being. He landed on, among other things, parkour and nature as powerful tools to get there. In this episode, we discuss human movement from an evolutionary perspective, ecological dynamics and aliveness in movement training, and understanding motivation and fundamental whys of practice. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Yeah, here's my first question, Rafe. This is the one I always start off with. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Self-reliance. Well, I mean, obviously there's the capacity to rely on yourself, right? In order to do that, you have to have cultivated skills that give you that capacity, right? So um, I actually think my older brother is a great example of someone who's, who's truly self-reliant because he can kind of do everything that he needs to do, right? He can fix his own cars. He can build his own houses. He has a job that makes lots of money, you know, kind of has all the competencies. Um, that's, that's what I'm looking for is like, basically you look at the things that you need to get done in your life and you say, okay, well, um, could I build a skill set that would allow me to accomplish as much of this on my own as possible? And then, I mean, it's interesting because there's a social element to human beings that's inescapable. And so I think that self-reliance itself can, can, in, can drive you in an, towards a, um, a perspective that's unsustainable, actually, right? The idea that you could, you know, control your entire food web yourself uh, right now is, is pretty difficult. So, so part of self-reliance is actually really having high social competence and knowing the type of relationships that you need to be invested in and knowing, are you familiar with, um, I think it was Heinlein who has a great quote. Oh, I should, I should always have this to hand. I need to frame this and put them on my wall, but it's like uh, something like uh, a human should be able to con a ship, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, uh, plan a gourmet meal, right? Uh, program a computer, fight bravely, die gallantly, right? Something along those lines. Um, specialization is for insects. Uh, and, and one of the things that he says in there that I really like, and I, I think I missed this part, is take orders and give orders. Right? There's so much there's so much orientation on self and so much orientation on everyone having to be a leader right now 
that we don't realize there's no leaders if there's not followers. If everyone wants to be a chief, then there's no chiefs, right? All you have is just bickering. Um, so part of being a leader is actually being willing to follow somebody else and understanding the relationship of doing that and the value of, of, um, of being willing to be uh, underneath someone else in a hierarchy in order to make something work better. Sometimes the most powerful leader is the leader who says, okay, that guy's the best on the team. So I'm going to help facilitate him or her doing what needs to get done. And I'll be the glue guy that makes everything else work around that. And that kind of leadership is often not respected. So thoughts on self-reliance. No, I think that's very powerful. I was just, as you were saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, in respect to what you noted, for def, you know, for sure, the idea of collaboration is really important, right? So I think a lot of people get this, this idea of self-reliance. They misunderstand it in the sense that you're talking about, where there's a potential for it to become narcissistic, all about me, and basically screw everybody else, right? But ultimately, I think real true self-reliance is exactly as you described it, is knowing your strengths, you know, knowing what you're good at, knowing what you're not good at, being able to look in your environment with the people that surround you and giving the people the opportunity who do have those skills that you don't have the ability to actually play the game, right? And so together, you all come together and you ultimately make something pretty amazing. So I think definitely when I think of self-reliance, the reason I like that term is because one of the things that I've always noted for myself is that you need to be comfortable with yourself. You have to be confident with yourself. You need to know what you're good at and what you're not good at in order to play with everybody else. You know, I think a lot of times when people don't know that and they don't have that and there's a schism with their understanding of where they are and what they can actually do is where the problems come in. Are you familiar with Jordan Peterson's work? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Jordan has this idea of the meta game, right? So like, you know, when we're playing soccer, are we playing soccer just to be the best at soccer? Are we playing soccer to win this game? Or are we playing soccer to, to have the best performance on our team and look the best, right? Or are we playing soccer to be the type of player that someone wants to invite to every game, right? And that, I like that idea of the metagame, right? And the metagame is sort of looking at like, how can I understand my strengths and my weaknesses and understand other people better such that whatever the game that's going on is, I can easily find a place that I can uh, slip into and add value so that people want me as part of that game. And I think that's a, that's a nice, really a nice expression uh, or a nice way to express kind of what it sounds like you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's beautiful. You know, when you were talking about cultivating skills, this is something that I was quite excited about talking to you about. We, when we, you know, obviously what's often on people's minds, especially in the Western world is happiness, right? Everybody wants to be happy. I'm not really sure that I like that term, to be honest. You know, I, I prefer contentment, being content with, you know, at least with how things are, knowing that it's not always going to be perfect and that's okay. And that actually there isn't, you know, when we talk about stress, everybody gets all freaked out and we, we you know, stress is the biggest problem, but actually without stress, we probably wouldn't achieve anything, right? So all of these ingredients that often gets labeled as negative have their positive aspects too. And I think a lot of times in the Western world, we forget that. I just feel like we overcomplicate the whole experience, right? Of, of what it means when we talk about human flourishing. 
what I really want to do and what it maybe talk about, and I think this leads into one of the things we said we would talk about is this idea of human movement from an evolutionary perspective is that I think we need to kind of go back to that ancestral wisdom, what our ancestors knew. And I, many of us in the Western world no longer know what that is. Maybe explain to, to the listener, what do you mean by human movement from an evolutionary perspective? Yeah. So the, the basic idea is a human being has a nature, right? Um, and well, I'll give you an analogy. Um, I like to say train a wolf like a wolf, train a human being like a human being. So you can imagine that you had a, uh, a personal trainer, right? Gone to school and had been trained, you know, on all the latest information on how to produce hypertrophy protocols and how to get the different aspects of the cardiovascular system working well and how to, you know, produce power dominant athletes or whatever was in vogue at the time, functional fitness. And, um, and then you had a zoo with a bunch of fat, unhealthy animals. And they hire this personal trainer to come in and train the animals. Um, but he doesn't know anything about animals. So he puts the, the wolves on a weightlifting regime. And, you know, he's got the tigers running distance. And, you know, he's trying to stretch out the rhinoceroses and stuff. And it's just a disaster, right? The animals won't do what they want him to do, right? Um, he can't motivate them to do the things. And he's getting bad results, right? The wolves break down and you have them carry heavy weights and the the tigers rip their paws up when you have them run for a long distance because a wolf is actually built for a specific type of physical activities. It's built to run long distances and chase down prey and wolves will run and run and run, but they're not, they're never going to put on muscle like a tiger because they're not built for that. So if you try to stress their body in the direction of creating that adaptation, eventually it's going to break down. It's the same thing for a tiger. You can't, you're not going to make a marathon runner out of a tiger. You'll just break it. So if you understand that, then you could ask, well, what is the nature of a human movement wise? And if you understand the nature of a human, you might understand why that human breaks under specific motor loading protocols. Right? So human beings are, are quite adaptable. Right. And we have a lot of variation, right? There are some humans that are much more tigerish and some humans that are much more wolfish. Um, more so than say wolves have variation or tigers have variation. But nonetheless, there are like common factors that are unique to human movement across the board and things that are evolutionarily old for us. And we can find those, um, when we look at play behavior, right? Animals play in ways that are relevant to the niche that they evolved for over time right so if you're if you're a horse you run a lot as part of your play and you kick your back legs up a lot as part of your play because horses run away from things that chase them and they kick them with their back legs so what do human children do everywhere in the world well one interesting thing that human children do is they love to climb trees well, why do humans love to climb trees it turns out that our ancestry something like 90 million years of arboreal locomotion we were tree dominant we were a arboreal species from most of what made us what we are so binocular vision grasping hands shoulders that have 180 degrees of rotational capacity um or 360 degrees sorry um all this all this unique stuff like our upright torso our flat chest like monkeys don't have flat chests or shoulders that are nearly as mobile as ours they're actually built more like a dog with a keel-shaped chest and a much more limited shoulder range of motion because they can't actually swing monkey bar style 
but a human developed this structure evolutionarily in order to swing from hand to hand, brachiate. And that was pre-adapted us to throwing. And throwing is actually the human superpower. People talk about being born to run, and it's true, we can persistence hunt, and that was an important part of our evolution. But it's, um, it's probably a less important part of the evolutionary story than people give it credit for, because it's in a very specific environment that it works. You can't persistence hunt in a, a tropical forest, and you can't persistence hunt in the Arctic as a human being. You have to have the advantage of an arid environment where human sweating ability allows us to dump heat much more effectively than large ungulates. In a, in a tropical forest where there's high humidity, you can't sweat fast enough, right? There's too much moisture in the air. You can't dump the heat fast enough. So it doesn't work there. In the Arctic, it's too cold. So there, there's, there's lots of environments in which we can't persistence on. Only about 6% of, um, of tribes in the ethnographic record use persistence hunting, and it's never the predominant hunting strategy. But everywhere in the world, we throw or we use amplified throwing, which is projectile weaponry like bow and arrows. And that's a completely unique human ability. And we're vastly like, take your dog for a run and ask yourself, okay, how, how much better am I at running than this dog? You're not. <laughs> okay. But elite, like the average human being can throw a ball like 50 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour. A big, powerful male chimp can throw 30 miles an hour. And human beings can, who are high level athletes can go 90 miles an hour. And we're the only thing that can throw accurately and at a moving target. That's allowed us to become the super predators on earth, right? We don't have claws and teeth we can throw. So throwing I'm not saying that everyone should be throwing. That's, that's not the point. It's understanding the nature of human beings and being able to look at it. Throwing is actually evolutionarily late in our development pattern. Climbing and swinging from your arms is more important to you than throwing. And throwing is much more likely to be destructive to your arm because it's exacted very late in the evolutionary process. So you have to be able to look at that entire evolutionary thing. So human beings love to climb trees. They love to run and jump and engage in locomotor play. They love to manipulate and make things because we're tool users. And we love to roughhouse, right? And roughhousing is this incredibly deep um, system that probably has antecedents that are 500 million years old. And it's probably the original form of play. So we could get deep into that. But, um, but that's a little bit about what I'm talking about when I think about this evolutionary frame. And I think that the, the kinesiology field and the sports performance field and all these fields, they haven't really been revolutionized by the Darwinian revolution fully yet. So speak to me a little bit about this idea where you just talked about, you know, hu human movement from an evolutionary perspective that gives kind of situates the human animal, right? And just our, especially from our ancestors. And as we, you know, most people know, I mean, for most of human history, we weren't where we are now. We were hunter gatherers. And now suddenly we're in this modernity where the world is very much different to the world that our ancestors knew for most of you know, human time on this planet. How has that disconnected us? Because there's the one side of, as you described, which is the evolutionary perspective of movement, but there's also how we are deeply connected to, to nature. And nature speaks to us on a very, um, not only a primitive level, but also on a psychological and emotional level. And we know that in any time we're out in nature, that sense of awe that we feel, 
is something that's very hard to recreate anywhere else and definitely in the Western world. So there's a meaning component there, right? Or would you agree with that? And what has actually been lost? I mean, what, are we, what have we lost where we are now versus where we came from? Yeah, I saw your LinkedIn profile, right? And it mentioned the, the term embodiment, right? And so we, we have the sense that, that we are having to rediscover what it's like to be in a body, right? And that, that we become dis- disconnected from it, right? So when we sit as we are and from the computer and we are typing and we're, our, our brain is sort of, we're, we're, we're basically cyborgs and we're, we're moving our brain into this object and then we're primarily interacting through the world through this object. And it's actually very easy to sort of lose sensory connection to the, to the lived experience of the body. And it turns out that, that that's, that's not an, ex, that's not a good experience for human beings in a lot of ways, right? That, that the experiences that are most joyful for us, that are most enriching tend to be experiences that bring us into the body, the body. Um, we can't escape the body. Right. The brain actually is the nervous system is continuous throughout the entire body. So it's not so much that there's you and then there's, there's your body. There's both. But it's like you can become blind to aspects of yourself. But the body isn't, you know, when I look at the embodiment community, I see a lot of people who who have a, a really important insight. But to me, it's incomplete because they're not looking at that body and its relationship to what is outside of it very much. You can have a stillness practice and a yogic practice or a Feldenkrais practice, and you sit in your, your, your white room on a flat ground and you roll around. Um, but that's not what your body is for. It's not the relationship your body evolved for. Um, it's like taking, you know, stroking the sides of a guitar, right? It tells you something, but that's not what the guitar was for. Right? The guitar is to play and it's to play for in, in relationship to people who are listening. Um, so, so, you know, I've been very influenced by um, my connection with uh, John Verbeke from the University of Toronto as the um, director of cognitive science there. And he, he's part of the 4E school of cognitive science, right? In order to understand cognition or understand what the mind is doing, you have to understand that it's embodied, it's embedded, it's extended, and it's enacted, right? So embodied, we are, you know, we we're just talking about that. People get that, I think. Um Extendedness basically means that we're part of the, the brain doesn't really work outside of being connected to other brains, right? So much of what we are is derived from somebody else. And then enacted means that like you can't, you can't really keep generating new knowledge that far without acting things out. But the part that I'm really interested in is the embeddedness, right? We are, we are, what we are is, is in fact continuous with the natural world around us. Like there are more bacterial cells in your body than there are human cells in your body. And those cells are constantly dying and shedding off of you and you're breathing in bacteria and you are being colonized by bacteria all the time. When you walk in nature, um, you're breathing phytochemicals that are breathed out by the trees. You know, your breath is part of the breath, right? The breathing cycle of the natural environment, right? You produce carbon dioxide, which is consumed by plants and trees and algae, and they produce oxygen, which is consumed by you. You're part of that cycle. Um, so you're embedded in this environment, and we become blind to it. I, I started doing parkour primarily in nature, something like nine years ago, I guess. Um, 
And at first it was just a cool new environment. Right. But I'd always, I mean, I've always loved nature and, and it kind of stacked nature into my parkour practice. So I got movement in nature and one thing. Um, but it started me asking more questions about the natural world. I was like, well, these trees are really cool, but these trees aren't as much fun to move in. Well, what's the difference? It's like, okay, are they different species of tree? Um, so then I'm, then I want to know what the different species of the trees are. And then it's like, well, it turns out that the species of tree that I'm finding that's really great for me to move in this area is actually very common. It's the Western red cedar. Um, it's the most, third most common tree in the Northwest. And most of the time it's not interesting to move in. Well, what's the difference? Well, it's, it's like trees eat light. And so in spaces where they have the capacity to move their limbs towards the light, then they'll grow really interesting limb structures. In a closed canopy forest, you won't, you won't find that. So then it's not just the species, it's the environment. And then you start to, to study. Well, what, now you start to have a model for what a tree is and what, what a tree's talos is, right? It's, it's goal, it's purpose. Um, and then it invited this curiosity in me about the broader natural world. And then I, because I was doing parkour in nature, I actually had a bunch of students come and start working with me who were working with the Anake Wilderness Awareness School, which had been formed by John Young, who was a student of Tom Brown's amazing wilderness awareness teacher. And so I just started sort of getting fed information about that. And then I had a, a, a nervous breakdown because I was overstressed and I couldn't practice my parkour normally. And so I made this commitment to myself to walk through the woods every day when I'm walking through the woods every day. And I had this epiphany that like, that, that meaning was written into the land and that I was blind to it because I didn't speak the language. Right. Mm. Like imagine how impoverished your, your life would be if you lacked the capacity to read. Right. You couldn't read Tolkien, you couldn't read Lewis, you couldn't read, you know, um, Dostoevsky or whomever it is that's interesting to you, whatever, Stephanie Meyer, I don't care. But like people have books that are deeply meaningful to them. And then recognize that that, that capacity for symbolic representation, that capacity to extract meaning from something that actually evolved out of the landscape. And that the, the, the story that you are tuned into for millions of years of evolution is the story of the animals, trees, and plants happening all around you. And that we've lost literacy in it, right? So you walk through the woods and you see a wall of green and you don't know which species is which species and you don't know why it's formed this way and that way. You don't know what lives there and how it's been used traditionally by people, right? Or what it meant spiritually to people in the past. So I feel like Modern Westerners walking through the woods are like illiterate people walking through the Library of Alexandria. And I'm interested in becoming literate again. That's beautiful. I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. So if we look at the two sides of this, right, we've got the embedded nature, nature that you described. Um, we, in the one sense, we've got embedded in an environment that we're not designed for, which we can call our modern world. And then on the other side, we are this idea of being embedded in an environment that we are designed for. What do you think outside of, you know, people going down and walking in the woods and being illiterate and not really understanding where they are and what it's about? What do you think people who are in the embedded aspect of the environment that they shouldn't be in, that's never going to give them the 
flourishing that they seek, which is our modern world, what have they lost? I mean, what have you, from your own experience also, you know, you described that you, you know, there was a time where you realized that for yourself and what is actually being lost? What are people missing? Well, so you're missing the air, right? What is the quality of the air that you experience, right? What is the sense that are impacting you? Are they the flowers, the dirt, the, you know, the greenery around you? Like when you walk through the woods under a fresh rain, right? It's a different smell than otherwise, right? You're missing sound, right? So the auditory landscape of, of moving through natural spaces is very different than moving through the city. Um, we're missing sensory experience, right? What is the feeling of moving your feet over stones and turf and leaf litter and tree bark versus walking in shoes? You know, they're the same shoes across the same pavement, across the same tile floors, right? You know, we're just coming out of the pandemic, right? You may have spent 90% of your walking steps over the last years on the same carpeted surface, right? So... Katie Bowman talks about vitamin texture. Literally, your, your kinesthetic system, your proprioceptive system, it's looking for feedback. And without that feedback, it, it ceases to kind of know how to respond. And so it turns out that, um, that certain neurological conditions are actually improved by just being able to walk over broken terrain. So... There's, there's this immense sea of information that your nervous system and your body evolved to be in relationship to and to be attuned to. And when you're removed from that, um, you, you're missing key nourishments, right? You're missing key nourishments for what gives a human being a sense of meaning and key nourishments for what helps your body and your psyche stay healthy. So there's this whole tradition of, uh, I think it's Shorin Yukyo, which is uh, forest bathing and, and, right? Um, which is this basic idea that just walking through the woods does something psychologically for a human being. Maybe it's negative ions and maybe it's phytochemicals from trees and maybe it's beneficial bacteria. But the mechanism doesn't matter that much, right? What matters is that we can consistently show that this has an impact on people. Uh, we can show that walking through a green space has a, has a, um, an impact on your ability to apply focused attention that's the same as taking a nap, right? It replenishes you. So we need to respect that and understand that and, and think about the fact that we've produced these environments that have lots of utility for us, right? Like if you want to get from one place to another, having flat concrete to get you there is much more efficient than having, you know, fallen logs to get across and, you know, soft slopes and mud um and so it's it's convenient but you sacrifice something to get that convenience right and then when you price when you replace the the walking with a bike ride you sacrifice something else bone loading right you replace it with a car you sacrifice something else now you're not moving at all um and we make these these we've made these choices over and over again um for convenience and there's incredible power to them. But we've been blind to what we've lost. So just when you were saying that about the idea of forest bathing, we now know, and there's a lot of research to back this up, 
that coming off those trees in a forest of these chemicals, terpenes. Mm -hmm. And those terpenes affect the nervous system. And as you said, we are a nervous system. Our nervous system is what's engaging the outside world. It's bringing in the sensation of the outside world. It would, you know, allows us to make meaning of where we are. What's happening there too is that the parasympathetic nervous system has been engaged, which is the calming side of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic being the fight and flight response. Most people that I meet these days are in sympathetic overload. They're in a constant kind of fight and flight vigilant response. And so just that walk through the forest actually changes your biology and it changes it in a positive way. And I think if more people knew that and they knew about the actual health benefits of going outdoors and being out in nature, maybe there would be a shift. But for some reason, and I'm sure you'd have something to say about this, but that doesn't seem to get to the average person because we are kind of steered always into this consumerism, you know, buy more. It's all about materialism. And that's being touted as if you go down that road, that's where you're going to be happy. But what I've seen more and more, the more people are removed from nature, the more unhappy they seem to become. Yeah, I, I believe that that's, that's true. And I just, I, I just experienced this a little bit. I, so I, I grew up on 12 acres surrounded by forests um, on the end of a dirt road. They've been my family since 1920. Is, is that the place in, the, in your video, that really funky, cool place? That's pretty awesome yeah it's, it's amazing so yeah so i grew up there and then i moved to bellingham which is a small town some hundred thousand people but it's surrounded by nature um for college and then i moved to seattle and after i was in seattle when i was in seattle like i had this amazing opportunity to build the first parkour gym on the west coast you know to be part of this this whole thing and the culture was great but i had this intense seasonal affective disorder that year um and you know, part of the, the evolution of my parkour into moving in nature was probably just like this, this need for, for being in nature. Right. And I just had to, had to find a way to stack that into my life. But, um, yeah, I went through a lot of sense that it was, that there was something really agitating for me about being in those spaces. And over the last couple of years, um, I've been interested in the idea that, that there's utility to not doing anything. Right. Like there's a need to sort of let the mind lay fallow, right? That, that things are generated when you're not proactively consuming something or trying to produce something. Um, and I found that, you know, in my downtime, I was habitually looking at my phone, habitually on YouTube, habitually doing these things. And I was trying to sort of break myself this habit. But I found that there was always this low level agitation, right? So then I recently moved to back to Bellingham. So uh, right now I'm sitting in my, my office in the house that we've rented. Um, and I have a five acre field, open field across from me. Uh, we're on a one and a half acre lot. And then I have a 745 acres of park across the street. Um, and, and so every morning, uh, I've been getting up and I drink my coffee and sit in the backyard and just sit for 20 minutes and read a book. Um, and then in the evening I sit on the front porch and watch the sunset. And it's amazing how much more um, calming and how much more sort of nourishing it feels and how much more able I am to access the doing nothing state here than I was in the city. I have a sense that 
that when you're surrounded by the noises of the city, when you're surrounded by the buzz of human activity, that it actually is like a, it's a low level irritant all the time for people. And it drives people towards, towards behavior, towards specific behavior to soothe themselves. You know, um, I've been listening a lot to the Andrew Huberman podcast right now. Um, he's a neurobiologist from Stanford. And it's, yeah. You know, I, I know a little bit about the neurobiology, but it's been really great to kind of like fill in on that. And one of the things he was talking about is sort of the dopamine system versus the serotonin system. And the dopamine system basically drives us forward. So it, it's, a, it's associated with positive emotion, but it's two-edged sword, right? You have pleasure when, when sort of the dopaminergic circuit is, is, um, is triggered and, and is uh, enforced, right? But then whatever causes that dopamine circuitry to, to turn on, um, it produces longing to replace that, right? So you eat a piece of chocolate and there's pleasure, but there's also pain that you're not eating the piece of chocolate moments later. And that's why you feel like you need to consume it. You don't just, you don't just take a piece of chocolate, you know, eat just one and be like, okay, that was wonderful. And I'm, I'm done, right? There's always that little bit of longing. And the serotonin system is more associated with, with, um, with what they call be here now, right? Like you're, 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 you have satisfaction and well being in what's happening in the present without the need to move towards something. And obviously we want, we want to be driven towards, towards things, right? It's, it's, it's important. It's, you know, you don't want to set yourself up so that you're satisfied all the time because then you never accomplish anything. So there's a reason that we have these two different systems. But I, I wonder if an environment like that um, drives us more towards the dopamine-based thing and makes us more oriented towards acquiring things rather than being able to be present in the moment. Yeah, I would say that's my experience. So just as a aside, where I am right now, so I, I grew up in South Africa, uh, in Johannesburg. That's where you know, all my formative experiences were formed. And long story short, you know, I was bullied when I was a kid. I, I grew up in government housing. Plus, you know, South Africa is not exactly the safest country on the planet, right? And then I had massive life changes a couple of years ago. And I moved, first of all, I moved to Thailand and then got stuck on the Isle of Man during the COVID situation when everything got locked down. And I've been on the Isle of Man ever since. So I've been very, very lucky that I haven't been walking my carpet up and down, right? I mean, I'm in a place, it's a beautiful island. There's amazing uh, spaces out here that you can like literally a couple of minutes and you're in nature, which is just phenomenal. And so for the last over a year since I've been here, I mean, I've been spending so much time outdoors, so much time in nature, something that I just never got around to doing in Johannesburg, partly because it's just not the place you want to do it. You're in a city kind of, yes, there's some outside areas, but because you feel unsafe all the time, you're wired and you're running on that sympathetic nervous system. And it's really been in this last year that I've seen amazing transformation just in my mindset. And you know, taking into account that I spent several years as a social scientist studying mindfulness, right? And I kept having this kind of conversation with myself is that, I've spent several years studying mindfulness. I understand it. Um, you know, I've gone into it. I practice it, but yet I wasn't getting to that next point of calmness. I mean, I was, I was able to apply it. I think it was helping me, but I just wasn't getting to that point where I, where I felt, okay, you know what? I'm actually feeling much better mentally and emotionally. 
And it wasn't until I've been on the Isle of Man and been able to go out into nature on a daily basis that I actually felt the shift that I was looking for. Now, obviously, bringing in mindfulness into that, as you were noting, noted, you know, being present, you know, and, and not being con continuously fixated on the past or the future, just being able to be where you are, fully immersed in the experience without judgment and taking it in. And of course, that's added to it. But I don't think I would have got to the point where I am now and the healing that I've been able to do if I hadn't had that opportunity. So in some way, even though COVID's been terrible for myself, business-wise, and, and obviously many of my team members, it's been a blessing in disguise because it really put me in a place where I was able to fully apprehend everything you've been talking about. And it's kind of set me on a new path, which is interesting. And I've kind of started moving in a direction where I'm now really, really interested in this connection between mind, body, and ecology. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I wouldn't be in Bellingham necessarily you know, without COVID too, because it was like, um, my wife got hired by Google and she was going to go down to, um, to uh, the Bay Area. I can't remember. Mountain View. She's going to go down to Mountain View for her intake. And between the time that they, you know, she got the contract and when she was going to fly down, everything got shut down. So she never spent a, a day in the office for Google. And that gave us the freedom to sort of m move up here after years of, of, of sort of being like, five-year plan, three-year plan, and 11 years have passed. And so that's been a huge blessing for us as well. Um, so I, I'm hoping that, that the way the world is evolving is going to give people more opportunities to do this and that we can, we can start to recognize how much we're sacrificing through this and, um, and, and start to sort of build more of a, of a, a system that respects the underlying nature of humanity. I wanted to touch on something you said earlier about uh, capitalism, if you don't mind. Are you familiar with the paperclip problem? It's, a, it's an AI thought experiment, right? So the idea is that if you had, if you designed a software that optimized paperclip factories, and that software was sufficiently high-powered and intelligent that it became a a sort of, you know, it, it, it went through the singularity and became a artificial general intelligence and had that capacity to, you know, essentially scale up its capacity for intelligence, right? The idea is that once, once AI passes a certain bar barrier, it's going to be able to make itself more intelligent. It's going to be able to essentially evolve itself much more rapidly than anything we can do. Um, well, its underlying ethic would remain the optimization of paper clips. And in the entire world could, would get turned into paperclips and human lives would be sacrificed to, to make paperclips. Well, I actually think that capitalism is kind of like that. Capitalism is a system, is a function that optimizes for the production of capital. And that doesn't mean I'm a socialist. I actually think capitalism is an incredibly important part of a sort of overall ecology of institutions because it delivers a lot of things that we really need and have benefited from. Right. But it, it's, it, it doesn't work well when it's not, when it doesn't have other sort of balancing forces because it has this tendency to sacrifice anything that produces a value that's not capturable as capital. So 
you'll see a lot of a lot of articles now about how we have to sacrifice the nuclear family, right? And you know, some of that's cultural conflict between different things. Some of it's you know the you know there's probably lots of reasons behind it. But one reason that you could posit that 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 those articles are picked up and produced by people, or or they're sort of um, pushed out, is that families are actually an institution that is contrary to the needs of capitalism because capitalism wants assets to be as fungible as possible. It wants things to be able to move as freely as possible. And if you're attached to living near your parents or attached to, you know, to staying with a partner and being monogamous, that actually means that you're less likely to move to get a job where you'd have a slight competitive advantage, which would increase the capacity of capitalism. So, so kin networks and families are incredibly valuable for human life, but they're not capturable as capitalism, right? Or you can look at the whole, um, the whole debate on sort of like monetizing and sort of representing unpaid labor, right? So, so how do we, how do we represent within capitalism the value of a mother's care for their children? Right? The desire to capture that is so that we can yeah, so that it, that it exists within capitalism. And, you know, there's a positive aspect of that, which is that then once it exists, then we can actually maybe uh, not let it get eaten up by other things. But then there's potentially a negative, which is that uh, by quantifying it and measuring it and producing it in a specific way, we s- manipulate the incentive systems away from the inherent innate incentive systems. If you start thinking about every relationship as transactional, that destroys human meaning, right? So it's the same thing for our relationship with nature. Like taking a walk in the woods is free, right? Um, yes, we have to spend money to preserve parks, right? The, the, that park that's next to me, the the amount of money that could be generated in this county by opening that up to development would be massive, right? But but for for me right now. My experience of that, going to that park, is utterly uncapturable, really, in a, in a capitalist frame. And so this is the problem that I think that we face, which is that that um, I think that democracy, capitalism, and Christianity all sort of grew up together, in a sense, right? Or we could say, well, science, democracy, and capitalism all developed within a Christian frame. And, you know, there's obviously also the scientific revolution, the golden age of Islam and, all, and, and, you know, various other things. But, but there was a point at which you had these four institutions that were central to what the West was. And they tended to counteract each other. The, the purpose of the religion was to enforce social character, right? To tell people that it was important to have a marriage, to tell people it was important to take care of their children, right? Honor thy mother and father. Capitalism doesn't care if you honor their mother and father. In fact, don't, because then you can put them in a home and then that's capturable and uh, then that's money that people are spending, right? So who tells you honor your mother and father, right? Who tells you don't, you know, don't cheat on your spouse? You know, this is just an article in like uh, one of the major, in The Guardian, I think, or something like that about, you know, like how to get away with cheating. One woman's story of cheating on her husband for a year. It's like, There, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't believe really in conspiracy theories. I think about systems, right? Systems that have incentive structures 
And when one system breaks down, that sort of holds the pole for a specific aspect of human character and, and needs, then, then you destabilize the system, right? You stabilize the overall system. Um, then obviously, you know, you can go back to the 1950s and say maybe Christianity was really strong in the United States and we didn't have the pull of protection of the environment and we had to have Rachel Carson come along. Um, but it's not, it's not clear to me that capitalism can make great environmental stewards, right? And, and it seems to me that environmentalism has in many ways become a religion for those who are really deeply embedded in it, but it's a religion that is um, often that feels very lacking in nuance, right? And so I'm not sure that it's provided the balance that we need. So anyways, this is, this is something that I, I think a lot about is how do we, how do we, how do we generate up uh, a kind of virtue cultivation system that actually integrates what has been passed down to us with recognizing that the problems that we currently face are not problems that we faced before necessarily. Um, and, and I think we have to have, we have to have something that tells you to honor your mother and father and, you know, protect your relationships and focus on your children that, and that that's not going to be capitalism. It's not democracy and it's not really science. So there's something else that has to be there. I think that's a really important point. I'm not sure what that's going to be, but you know, as you were saying that, I was just thinking. We talk about capitalism; it's it's really about consuming space for its own advantage. You know, if it won't see a forest as needed unless it can be turned into a product to be sold. But we also know from research that if you look at underprivileged neighborhoods that have had green spaces instilled within them, that crime drops that mental health improves. So there is an impact there from a social standpoint. And I think it's exactly what you're talking about is that we seem to have forgotten the social aspect and it's just purely about that capitalistic gain above all else. And it's going to eliminate all those other things in favor of itself. And so it's just an all-consuming entity. So I'm not really sure where we're going to go, but um, that's going to be a tough one to to figure out. Yeah, we need we need something because um, I think the idea of tearing tearing it down uh, is is ultimately misguided and and often by people who don't really have skin in the game or recognize what it's creating. Um, but 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 this incentive problem is massive. And I think it's getting worse. And so this mm -hmm. thing that we're talking about, about getting people onto nature um, and the, the importance of that, it's like we need institutions that, that tell us to honor the forests, right? And honor our relationship with the forest and to go find that time. But even there, you don't have to tear it down. I mean, look at just that example that I gave of an underprivileged neighborhood, right? If we... If there was, of course, like you said, we need a system to come in or somebody to say, look, this is needed and this should be a prerequisite in all underprivileged neighborhoods. We will put green spaces in, but we know what the, what the advantage is. We can see from the research that it's positive. So we can have both the kind of, I guess, the capitalistic kind of frame 
lying in with the, the kind of more nuanced understanding of what is required for human beings to live a life of flourishing. And one of those is a simple way of saying, okay, let's create some green spaces, knowing that there is probably no real wilderness nearby those people that they could ever access, but they could access green spaces within their own community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so then there's the question of, so you can, you can represent now the potential cost of not having the green space, right? Here's the cost in, in, in extra crime in this neighborhood. Here's, you know, here's businesses that won't be able to start because of that cost. But then the problem is um, who, who foots the bill for the cost, right? And who gets, who gets to, um, who gets the coins for the gain, right? And if you don't have the right incentive structure, uh, then it's very easy for a set of corporate interests to decide that, that those costs are very externalizable and those gains are not very easy to capture. So, so, so we're just not going to do that, right? It doesn't matter that it, that, that the overall system makes less capital because, because each, each corporation is looking out for their own bottom line. Um, and so that's where we need some of these other systems in place. So I don't know. That's we could, that's quite a long, a long, a long, a deep topic to get into. That's like a really deep conversation. I think let's kind of steer back to something a little bit more uplifting um, just as we get to the end here. Uh, maybe just even though we have been talking about it, give me some final idea, uh, ideas on understanding motivation and fundamental whys of practice. I think that's a good place to kind of end our conversation. It really comes, you know, obviously we need to be connected. We need to be part of a community. But one way that we can make these changes, I think, is us individually making those changes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, another Peterson quote is that um, no social system is proof against the corruption of the individual, right? And I, I don't think, I, I mean, I think that it's obvious that incentive structures can, can help people become more virtuous and incentive structures can help you become less virtuous, right? Or, or will drive people towards a lack of virtue. So we need top-down solutions, but we also have to have bottom-up solutions. We have to say, okay, if the system has become corrupt in a specific way, the, 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 the most proximate beginning place is to start cultivating my own virtue in, in, in relationship to this. Um, so you have to decide in some sense that you want to become a virtuous person. And then you have to decide what, what that virtue is, right? So I've gone down quite an interesting road in, in thinking about this, but I started with fitness, right? We have, we know that people need to exercise. We know that people are suffering massive health. Like it's costing our system incredible amounts of money. The fact that we're so unhealthy um, and yet we fail to motivate people to do it. We've had public health campaigns for, for, for decade after decade now, since the 1960s at least, we have a $30 billion industry in the States devoted to health and fitness. And we have the least healthy human beings in the history of the planet. And I believe that fundamentally we've misunderstood the motivation structure that actually will effectively get people moving. And I think that starts with play right? Because children inherently are driven to move through play. And human beings, if you look cross-culturally and you compare them across the animal kingdom, are the most playful animals. The longer an animal has, the longer childhood an animal has, the more behavioral flexibility it needs, the more playful it is. 
So we have this strong inherent desire to engage in playful movement. And if you look at people who have sustained movement practices for very long periods of time, there's always this element of play. So that was a sort of the starting point. It's like, let's, let's, we've, I think we've engineered our system of thinking about fitness um, around it's, it's mechanical and it's shame-based, right? So it's like, you're going to get unhealthy and you're going to be ugly, right? So you want to be healthy and you want to be sexy. So come into the gym. And that works for a small minority of people, but for most people, it's not working. And I think if we look at the way that children are handled, built to move, we can see a better system for, for getting motivation, which is to move for the meaning that you got to move for the joy that you get out of the movement. And I think that's a, that, that's where we need to start with that. And I, I dug a little bit deeper after that though, because it seems like as we enter adulthood, there, there is something that really drives a practice that fulfills us, that can't be quite captured just in the joy of the practice, because there's a lot of things that we would do that, that we do that just aren't joyful in the moment, right? And I, you know, I had a lot of conversations with people and it's and it started to come down to this idea of like connection and character transformation. So I practice parkour in nature because it connects me to nature, right? I do roughhousing and martial arts because it connects me to other people. Like the intimacy level that I have in a friendship where we've punched each other in the face a few times and grappled and thrown each other, it feels different. Right? Um, so you become part of community. Um, so I believe there's four fundamental reconnections we all need. We need a, a deeper connection to self and that is expressed in both the mind and the body and the interaction of the two. So you can talk about mindfulness, body, integrity, and embodiment. Like all those are sort of wrapped in that self container. And then there's the relationship to, to the external world, right? And then there's the relationship to, to other people. Right? You need to have practices that make you, that help you connect to those things that give you regular nourishment along those. And then you also, as a human being, have this, this desire to be oriented towards something, to be moving towards something, to engage in self-transcendence. And I actually think a movement practice is the most profound place to start that. And it's been completely forgotten, right? We think about philosophy. We think about you know, cultivating our rationality or becoming more scientific thinkers. We think about spirituality, like all these spirituality is, is reading the Bible or spirituality is sitting and doing stillness meditation, but the physical aspect of it is lost. And that's, that's actually really weird. Um, and I think it's a, it's a historical anomaly of Western culture that we've separated spirituality from the body. Cause if you look at shamanic traditions, the, the, the practice of, of connecting to spirituality is very physical. It's dancing, it's wrestling, it's engaging in obstacle coursing, it's jumping off high things, right? Um, it's fasting, it's spending time deep in nature separated from other human beings and then coming into uh, experiences of incredible communal oneness through group dancing, right, and ritual. And then we can go to the Taoist practices and the Buddhist practices, and you have the, the Yoga Sutras and Vedanta, and you have Qigong and the, the internal martial arts. In in uh, in the Chinese tradition, you have the Buddhist tradition, the Shaolin monks in in China, um, and 
Um, there's even a hypothesis that, that the original form of Christianity that spread across uh, the Mediterranean in Europe was danced, right? And then you have it show up in Islam and Sufism. So this idea that actually to access this, the spiritual, we have to move through the body is something that, that has shown up over and over again. But somehow within the specific strain of Christianity that became powerful within the West, you had this desire to divorce the body completely from the the mind, you know, and we have this starting with the Gnostics, right? The Gnostics really believed that this world was corrupted, right? There was too much existence, suffering existence. And there was this belief that the God of the Old Testament is the demiurge, that it is the, that is actually a false God that, that exists basically to torture us, and that Jesus was an emissary of a God who's behind that God. And that in order to, to, um, to achieve what we're looking to achieve in order to follow his example. Not all Gnostics were Christians, but there was Christian Gnostics. We actually have to escape this world and that the spirit is completely separate from the body. But if you look at the, the very origins of Christianity, you actually have this idea that, that, that Christ is embodied, right? That the spirit of God is embodied and that when, that his promise to us is to destroy death and bring us back bodily to engage in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Right? Heaven in the original conception is not the spiritual realm that we go to after we die. It's actually the place that we currently are made perfect. And we will all be resurrected in some point in the future. And I'm not, I'm not a devout Christian, so maybe it sounds like I'm preaching right now, <laughs> but I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not offering this as a real metaphysics. I'm offering this as a symbol, symbology, right? Of the body and how the body interacts with these things that we're seeking. And then at some point, that strain of Gnosticism, Gnosticism sort of becomes stronger and stronger in Christianity. In the medieval period, you have this desire to get away from the body. And then that comes into Aquinas and then into Descartes, right? And at, at the origin of science, you have this idea, cogito ergo sum, right? I think, therefore I am. We've separated now the entire world around us, which we see as mechanical and disenchanted and and the only thing that represents the spirit, the only thing that has agency is the human mind, which is treated as completely separate from the rest of the causal universe. And so we've taken ourselves and, you know, taken, we've, we've unhomed ourselves from the body and from the world. I actually mentioned this the other day, is that when you look at the, the supposed, you know, words of the Buddha, so these are obviously his disciples writing down the words of the Buddha. He was very, very clear when he talked about mindfulness, which is now this buzz word, right? This buzz thing everywhere that you cannot experience mindfulness unless you experience it through the body. He was very specific about that. He didn't say, oh, mindfulness is just something that you cognitively engage with. He said that you can only experience mindfulness through the body. So that kind of speaks to what you've been saying. And that's, that, that's what, that's what the science, cognitive science says, the same thing, right? That we can't, you can't create a mind in some sense without embodying it. And the evolutionary science says the same thing, that, that a body that moves is the prerequisite for a nervous system that thinks. Um, so, so, okay. So to go back to this question, what's the, what's the purpose, right? Like what is the motivation system? So for me, the motivation system is become a person who is self-transformation towards being a person who has a better ability to see the world as it is, Right to be able to articulate the problems that I see, to have the strength of character 
and of body to confront them and the skills to, to confront them with. And if we can cultivate all those things and we put them in service of truth and the love that wants to make the world come into better being, that's, that's the most profound purpose that I believe that we can articulate. Um, and that that I think will motivate people to, to truly deeply orient themselves towards the practice. Yeah, no, I think that's beautiful. But so as we come to the end, Rafe, any final words of wisdom beyond of what, what you just said? Because I think that final kind of those, those last few words that you noted was like right on the money. But anything else you want to add to that? For the listener, just final words of motivation. Start by going outside and taking a walk in nature. If you feel called to, to jump across a creek or walk along a fallen log or climb a tree, listen to yourself. Take a deep breath and breathe out slowly and let all this stuff go and rehome yourself in the body in the natural world and see what happens. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.